I don't have a clue how to start this message. I've tried everything. Pixar's newest movie, Soul, Thomas Edison, Martin Luther King Jr., a home video of five-year-old Nathan passing gas before going to sleep. I've tried it all. None of it works. All I'm looking for is some sort of image for this one question. How do you change the world? Now, perhaps it's unfair to think a question that large could be captured in one image, but I actually don't think it's so much about the image as it is about our present cultural moment. See, I think we are skeptical of the grandiose size of a question like that. We're doubtful of the fact that we might be able to see a reshaping of the complete global context. We might, in generations of time, have enough influence over politics, over the economy, over education to make some sort of impact in that one area. But full-scale transformation, not just of a city, not just of society, but of the entire world, it's fool's play. Not so with Jesus. The text that we have today is Jesus' manifesto of the transformation of the world, what it should look like, and how we get there. He's not skeptical. He's certainly not foolish. He's a teacher. Luke, the author of this biography that we've been going through, has been exploring the fact that Jesus comes and he does and he teaches. And today he is in that role of teacher. He is wanting to reshape the way that we see the world, reshape the way that we think. And so we come to Luke chapter 6, verse 20 to 49. And this is actually a big day. I don't know if you realize this, but there's been a bit of an inside joke between myself and our lead pastor, Tim. This is kind of like my graduation. So it seems to me that I have often been scheduled to preach on days when nobody else wants to. Um, long weekends or something like a topic like sex. Today, that is not the case. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Plains, as it's called. It is referred to that because scholars recognize that Luke tells us Jesus is speaking on level ground. It's the Sermon on the Plains. So here, for the very first time, is just a plain sermon. <laughs> Jesse is shaking his head behind the camera right now. That was bad. Let's move in here. Uh, Jesus begins with four words of blessing. Could be translated happiness, could even be translated as flourishing, but they target four areas of life. Financial, physical, relational, and emotional. Four things that are common to the human experience. So read with me. He, that is Jesus, lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. 
beautifully, Jesus's blessing is reserved not for those who already have everything, but for those who don't. And I think Jesus' words, in fact, throughout all of history, Jesus' words are powerful and important, but I also think there's specific moments in our own lives and culturally where these words take on significance, special significance. So hear these words again in the context of a global pandemic that has ravaged us physically, emotionally, financially, and relationally. If you have lost or perhaps have never felt a sense of financial security, but are concerned about making ends meet, Jesus speaks blessing over you. If you are lacking in the basic needs of human life, such as food, water, shelter, or perhaps you are even currently sick, Jesus has blessing for you. If your emotional well-being is rapidly deteriorating and you feel like you've lost your joy, the blessing of Jesus proclaims that you will one day rejoice. And if you, on account of your faith, find yourself excluded from the in-group or in the depths of isolation and pushed to the margins, Jesus' words for you are blessing and joy. The blessing of Jesus targets those in need not because of their present reality, but because of an eternal hope. And then he offers four contrasting woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, instead of invoking the sort of happiness or flourishing of the word blessing, woe elicits judgment and sorrow. Judgment because it proclaims the fact that justice reigns despite the reality of evil, and genuine sorrow over the fact that some people willingly join themselves to the kingdom of this world instead of the kingdom of heaven. So it would be fair for me to say, woe to you who continue to walk in darkness and do not see the light by cheering for the Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> Your suffering is inevitable, and I am genuinely sorry over the fact that you will not see the light. Woe to you who's cheer for the Vancouver Canucks. Now, obviously the Canucks are one of the easiest punching bags in sports. What's fascinating about Jesus, and in fact the biblical prophets in general, is they do the exact opposite. They invert it. They do not proclaim woe or judgment upon those that would typically be expected. They do it upon those we would least expect. The religious and the social elites, they proclaim woe upon those who, in the context of the world, already have everything. Financial prosperity. Physical health and wellness happiness, and fame. And that's not to say that those things are in and of themselves bad. That's not Jesus' point here. Rather, he's inverting the values of the world and replacing them with his own. That's the structure of his message. He proclaims the nature of the kingdom of God in three different realities. The first is this, that we would be dependent vertically. Now, the call on everyone is, this, is the same, genuine repentance, that is turning from an old way into the new one, and complete submission to Jesus. 
but in a culture of prosperity, like the one we inhabit that celebrates self-achievement and self-fulfillment and self-made women and men, we have not learned and internalized the patterns of dependence that Jesus invites us into. See, what's counted as privilege in the context of the world is considered a disadvantage in consideration of the kingdom. Dependence upon God, not our own achievement, is what marks us as those who are truly blessed. Note then that the central virtue in the life of Jesus is not self-actualization, nor self-achievement, nor self-fulfillment, but love. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. To be clear, these words would have been revolutionary. But to be honest... They don't really feel like it anymore. Today, we like love. We might even love love. There's something about the familiarity of these words, and even maybe specifically the golden rule in verse 31, that don't feel like they carry as much power. And I think this happens for a couple reasons. One would have been this idea of cultural numbness that we today have. Let's be clear to start off. Love is an orientation towards seeking someone else's benefits by pouring ourselves out. And we want to try and remove the numbness by evaluating and measuring whether or not we've been living up to this. We actually have a measurement tool that you can check on our website about in order to see whether or not this is something you want to pursue further. But simply for our purposes right now, consider the past 168 hours of your life, the past week. Evaluate the level of love in your life. How many hours were spent reaching out to your enemies, specifically devoted to loving them? How much time did you spend intentionally seeking out those who hate you just so you could do good to them? Or in the context of prayer, the act by which we invoked the hand of God to move in power to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How much of time, how much of your time did you specifically devote to praying for your enemies? To for for the sake of the owner of Mr. Fluffy, that dog that barks in the one in, at one in the morning, to pray for Gerald, your co-worker with the squeaky chair, to pray for the person who destroyed your career, who ruined your family, who fractured a nation, who broke your heart, who fill in the blank. Jesus' love will only seem as radical as we allow it to be. And frequently, instead of taking the radical nature of his words as an invitation to pursue a self-sacrificial kind of love to which there is no comparison, we gloss over it. 
I also don't think this is fully our fault. I think there's a reason that we would be this numb. Jesus has seemed to think that, he seems to think that just the idea of this kind of love would be so distinguishable from anything else. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return for your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High and you're, um, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus recognizes that placing love as the central virtue of life will distinguish Christians from the rest of the world. And the fact that it might not feel that way today, I think is evidence of the impact of Jesus and the corresponding movement that has happened for the past 2,000 years. Listen, you might choose not to believe in Jesus. We are not in control of that decision. We genuinely hope that you do. But I just want you to hear the historical and sociological impact that the Jesus movement and specifically Jesus himself has had on the entire world. Among the many things that Jesus introduced to the world and the corresponding movement that advanced these things to the ends of the earth, maybe universal human dignity or the inclusion of women, none of them stands as, as significant, sorry, none of them stands as, as significant a moral development as the idea of the centrality of love, or as what the ancients would say, charity. So David Bentley Hart discusses this. He talks about how the initial appeal, in fact, the renown of Christianity was based on Christians' love for, them, for each other, for their neighbors, and even for their enemies. He says this, these Christians brought something new into the ancient world, a vision of the good without precedent in pagan society a creed that prescribed charitable service to others as a religious obligation, a story about a God of self-outpouring love. And I think the impact of this is perhaps seen most strongly in the Roman Emperor Julian. Julian hated Christianity. He stood as kind of the final domino to fall in the middle of the fourth century before Christianity would merge as a, the dominant political influence, cultural influence in the Western world. That we might call it the marriage of the church and the states, which something that at best recognized and acknowledged a transcendent reality over anything else that humans could accomplish, but at worst, relegated faith in Jesus and reduced it, in fact, to sometimes nothing more than a political identification. For our part, Julian hated Christians. He lamented the fact that over the past 300 years, slowly the worship of Greek pagan gods like Zeus had been pushed to the sidelines, and he wanted to restore that worship. He hated Christians. But listen to what he had to say about them. It is a disgrace that these impious Galileans, that is Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Listen, if the first calling of the kingdom is that we would be dependent vertically, the second is that we would be sacrificial outwardly. 
this is the radical nature of Jesus' love that has transformed the world. But even if we were to be able to remove the numbness from our minds and actually see clearly the picture, the radical and revolutionary nature of love, there's still actually something else that would prevent us from being able to accomplish it. Another obstacle. Read it in verse 38, or sorry, verse 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words... Any level of hypocritical judgment warrants us to be judged of all our own hypocrisies. Any self-righteous act of condemnation warrants us to stand in condemnation. Any lack of forgiveness marks us as unworthy of forgiveness, and the list goes on. Jesus is not simply giving us an idea, a teaching that once we've heard it is now easily put in place. I often like to describe the words of Jesus as the Old Testament on steroids. Jesus is taking many of the foundations that were set in place, a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, of grace and compassion, and expanding upon them to give a true vision of what God's intents for the world were. This is not an easier picture of life. It is a higher calling. Israel failed at less than this. There's something else standing in the way. And I think where we can see this most clearly is the way in which Jesus tells us what the method will be for this expanding movement to reach the ends of the earth. Verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. He uses the imagery of a teacher or a blind or a blind man leading. Um, I think it is no minor detail that the God of the universe came to earth in the form of a Jewish rabbi. See, the idea of a rabbi was someone who had gathered to themselves disciples who had learned to be like them, to think like them, to speak like them, and to act like them. And then they themselves would go and do the same one day. They might themselves become rabbi. I think this is Jesus' methodology for reaching the ends of the earth. It's what we see in what we call the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. Now, when we as a church today speak of a movement of more and growing followers of Jesus, we today envision a spirit-empowered group of people who intentionally invest in a few and raise them up to be disciples of Jesus. And then the process continues, and those people do the same. And bit by bit, there's this expansion until one day it becomes an explosive expansion, a movement of more and growing followers of Jesus, developing healthy churches for the glory of God and the flourishing of our city and the world. Here's the thing. The greatest obstacle to this, according to Jesus, is not in the willingness of others. It's not in a particular people group or a, a particular political party or an educational system. 
the greatest obstacle is not external. It's internal. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. See, we can become masters at recognizing imperfection in the lives of others, but completely miss it in our own lives. If the first two callings of the kingdom are to be dependent vertically and to be sacrificial outwardly, the third is this, we must be healed inwardly. Jesus does not let others off the hook. There is still a speck, but the primary issue is the log, the plank in our own eye. I think this actually puts us into the climactic point of Jesus's teaching. You know, often we've been doing longer passages of text in this series than would be usual. And here's what happens. I thought I knew everything about this passage. It's a very familiar one. But when we took it, the entire thing together, the climactic point is actually a little bit different. And it centers around this idea. How is all of this going to be possible? How is this vertical dependence, this outward sacrifice, this inward healing, where does it come from? And I think the climactic point is in this next section. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good measure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of, the, out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. All of this, I think, revolves around this idea of the heart. Now, oftentimes we would describe the heart as the rival of the mind. Mind is more thinking, heart would be more emotional. But I think the biblical understanding of the heart includes thinking, includes emotions, and includes more than that. Think of it this way. Sarah, my fiance, will tell you that I'm pretty particular about language. So we are not getting married for forever, we're getting married for the rest of our lives. <laughs> uh, another one, I refuse to say, Sarah, you are my world. One thing that I think is both really cheesy and helpful in our understanding is this phrase, I love you with all my heart. What that means is that if you were to strip everything else away, at the core of who I am is love for Sarah. Love for Sarah is at the base disposition of how I live and act and think and speak. The heart is our central reality that influences every aspect of our lives, thinking and emotions, but also character, speech, actions, relationships, all of it. Now, Obviously, I'm earning a lot of brownie points right now, but I do want to turn to Scripture. And scripturally, the Bible describes the heart as something that is very significant in our journey. So you can turn to Proverbs 4.23, which talks about guarding or keeping our heart. It has this central reality. And today, the Western view of human life is exceptionally high. And by the way, that's something Jesus himself teaches in terms of dignity and potential. But the clear marker of change 
is whether or not we are able to, on our own, anchor our lives purely in the central virtue of love. And we're not. I think one of the reasons that we are numb to the teachings of Jesus on love is that we're tired of it. We've tried and it's just too hard. For this reason, the intersection point of the divine reality and the human reality has to be the heart. If we want to see the kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it requires a transformation of the heart. And suddenly the threefold kingdom actually perfects itself. Dependence upon God leads us to love others, to sacrificially pour ourselves out, but it's only possible because of an inward healing accomplished by the Spirit, a transformation at the core of who we are in our hearts. That's the kind of thing that's only possible because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the kind of thing that's only possible because of the outpouring of his Spirit, the healing at the core, at the heart vertical dependence, outward sacrifice, inward healing. This explains the centrality of repentance and confession of sin within the Jesus movement. In the act of turning from our former ways and becoming disciples of Jesus, we are cleansed, we are healed, and ultimately we are told by the prophet Ezekiel we are given a new heart. Now we are able to live as God intends us to live. Now we may be a good tree producing good fruit. Now, out of the treasure of our hearts, we may produce good. And this provides context for the final section of this perhaps not so plain sermon. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Here's what we know. First, if you believe in Jesus, you have been given a new heart. You have been transformed. But we also know, uh, say in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 15, it talks about how we are to keep ourselves, even as Christians, from a deceitful and unbelieving heart. There's this continued transformation that happens. Secondly, the other thing that we know is we're either on good foundation or we're not. I think this has been a season of revealing where the bad foundation is. Think of your experience over the last 10 months. Perhaps yours has been like mine. I've felt increasingly discouraged, unmotivated, irritable, lonely. I miss being with people, honestly. I really do. And it, it, it just kind of drags on and on. I've not often embodied the love of Jesus, and truthfully, that's not even the case just now in this season, but it's the case quite frequently even before this. Let me tell you where I think there's such an incredible opportunity right now. I want to pull from an idea that's actually in the book of Hebrews. See, in Hebrews, we read about the idea that the kingdom of God is an unshakable kingdom. 
Here's what that means for where we are right now. Everything that is shaking is not the kingdom of God. Everything around us feels like it's shaking, but everything that is shaking is not the kingdom of God. Or perhaps in the words of Jesus, the things that have been swept up as if in a rushing river were those things which were destined to fail. Here's what that means. In the context of a season that is revealing many of the things within my heart that are still needing to be transformed by the Spirit as I find myself discouraged and lonely and irritable and unmotivated, all these things, there's been this moment in history where we are seeing very clearly what is destined to fall away. And that's actually reason to rejoice. We are seeing on a personal level, and in fact around us, the things that are destined to fail. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice over the things that are fading away. Rejoice over what's been revealed in your life and in my life that needs to still be transformed by the Spirit. And recognize it's not our circumstances that determine our flourishing, but our hearts before God. And that is the heart of the matter.